Yes, we're picking up our uh, series in 2 Samuel, which we've had a, a break from over Christmas. And 2 Samuel 11, as I'll ex- explain a little bit more later, represents something of a turn in David's reign. And I'm afraid not a happy one. We're going to read a decent chunk here. We're going to go from 11.1 through till 12.15. So 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerobesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, 
The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Jerob, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah, that's Bathsheba, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Let's pray together for God's help. Father, we may well not like this passage and wish it wasn't here, but we know that we need it. Please help us as we look into the mirror to look at what we're really seeing, show us our sin, show us to our need for grace. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's June the 17th, 1972. The head, headquarters of the DNC, the Democratic National Committee in Washington, D.C., the heart of U.S. political life. A nighttime security guard patrols the grounds and discovers tape attached to the locks of the security doors. Strange. He removes them, comes back around a little later on the shift and spots that the doors have all been re-taped. Someone's trying to stop the doors from locking. Someone's in there, he calls the police. Five men are caught and arrested, four ex-CIA and one prominent member of the committee to re-elect the president, caught trying, amongst other things, to steal democratic documents and to tap phones. The ensuing scandal went right to the top. At Watergate, named after the DNC Watergate complex, cost Nixon the presidency, not only because of the crimes themselves, but because of what was discovered to be a president-approved cover-up of such proportions that Gate became shorthand for corruption and scandal. And of course, we've had plenty of our own Gates, as it were, in the UK. You might think, for example, of Partygate during the pandemic and many others too. What are we going to call 2 Samuel 11 and 12? Uh, David Gate, or Bathsheba Gate, or Uriah Gate, or Adultery Gate, or Murder Gate, or you choose your title. It's probably the most famous cover-up in the whole of the Bible. And if we've been listening carefully to the book of Samuel since we started all those months ago, we will be desperately disappointed. Because until this point, David's reign has been so promising. At the book of Samuel, parts one and part two, which we're in at the moment, is all about leadership. The story of the Bible so far had proven that if Israel were ever to be the nation, the holy nation that God was calling them to be, they needed a leader. And we learned what kind of leader they needed from Hannah's prayer. Remember that right back in 1 Samuel chapter 1? Her prayer functions as a sort of a contents page or a, a thematic index of everything that happens in the story that follows. And according to Hannah's prayer... Israel needed a leader marked supremely by humility under God. One who makes God the hero and obedience to God the aim. Saul, we saw together, wasn't that man. But David's rule so far, at least until now, has been very encouraging. Here is a man apparently of integrity and piety and passion for the presence and the glory of the Lord. In fact, until the end of 2 Samuel 10... Looking at David has been a little bit like looking at the Lord Jesus Christ. But looking at David in 2 Samuel 11 is a lot like looking at ourselves. David holds up a mirror to our own hearts. And that means I'm afraid that this evening is going to be a little bit difficult. And next week, please plan to come back next week, we're going to spend time, uh, much more time on God's forgiveness and his restoration of the sinner. Please come back, particularly if this evening weighs heavily on you. But for now, we need to look into the mirror, and we're going to do it in three parts, in three scenes. And the first, the crime. Or maybe we should say the first crime, the crime. 
verses 1 to 4 of chapter 11. Some people think that David's first mistake here is there in verse 1, staying at home when kings usually go to war. As the saying goes, the devil makes work for idle hands. Well, whether or not that was a mistake, verse 2 to 4 is a scandal. It's late in the afternoon and the king is taking a stroll along the roof walkways of the palace in the cool of the day. And there in the middle distance, he sees a beautiful woman bathing herself. Now, there's no reason whatsoever to think that she's being an exhibitionist. She's performing, we learn, a religious cleansing ritual, and most likely in private. But the king's elevation presumably means he's able to see what he ought not to be able to see. Now, we could say, well, that's not really David's fault. That sort of thing can happen. Now, all David needs to do is to quickly avert his gaze and walk away. But here is the moment of real danger. We might have thought David is a long way from danger. All the fighting, we're told, is going on in Rabbah with Joab and the army. But the real battle for the king is right here. His deadliest enemy isn't the Ammonites or the Philistines. It's himself. And when he's off duty, as it were, when he's off guard, he's at his most vulnerable. This morning we were looking together, weren't we, at Mark chapter 7. We saw the Philistines, the Philistines, the Pharisees rather, criticizing Jesus' disciples for not performing the, the ritual washing before eating. We heard how in the, the Pharisees' worldview in the first century, the problem is outside ourselves. And the way to be clean, therefore, before God is to stop the moral dirt on the outside getting inside, which explains all of the washing and the careful dieting and so on. I'm not sure things are so different today, are they? The pollutants that our culture is most worried about are all outside of us, whether it's um, pollutants in the oceans or chemicals in our food. But Jesus tells the Pharisees, and he tells us in Mark 7, that the real pollutant is already inside us. Let me remind you what we heard in Mark 7. Jesus told them and told us, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile them? What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. It's a Striking contrast, isn't it, to today's messaging? We're told, we're encouraged to listen to our hearts, to chase our dreams, to follow our desires. To deny our own desires, we're told, is an act of self-hatred. We're being inauthentic, not true to ourselves. But Jesus there says that looking within ourselves, what we find is a sewer. In our natural state, we find a toxic fountain which continually splurges out judgment-deserving filth. Peter writes in his first letter about the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Don't be naive, he's saying. Your sinful desires are not your friend. They're trying to kill you. You have a mortal enemy within you. Sin hates you. It's utterly and completely ruthless. It'll take whatever ground you let it. It'll destroy whatever it's allowed to destroy. 
and it'll keep going until it ruins you forever in hell. Do you realize that your biggest enemy is within yourself? Nothing is as dangerous to our eternal soul as our sinful nature. Don't be naive. Take sin seriously. The moment you let your guard down, you're in deep trouble. But the king of Israel here does let his guard down. And he goes further. In verse 3, he asks who the woman is. And now he knows. He can't plead ignorance. He knows this woman belongs to another. In fact, she's the wife of one of the men out fighting for him on the front line. But verse 4, nonetheless, what does he do? He takes her. Do you remember Samuel's warning back in 1 Samuel 8 about the kings of the, the nations who take from the people? David takes her and he sleeps with her. Some people have suggested that this constitutes rape on David's part. Now, we might not have quite enough information to know that for certain, but there is clearly a massive power imbalance here at work, isn't there? David isn't just anyone. He's the king. He's God's anointed, no less, with all sorts of royal and maybe spiritual leverage. How can Bathsheba say no to a man like that? Perhaps we can see now why the character of the king has been such a major theme since Hannah's prayer back in chapters 1 and 2. Why does it matter that God's king is humble and obedient to the Lord? Because with great power comes great responsibility, and sinful people just aren't good with power. We think we are, but we're not. The history of um, world politics tells us so. Sadly, some of the history of churches tells us so as well. Uh, in our own church here. This is why it's so important that we don't locate too much power in the hands of any one sinful person. It's why we believe, and we must keep believing passionately in, for example, a plural leadership, a plural group of elders holding each other to account, and in a mature and informed and consulted membership. Because even born-again people, even spirit-indwelt people can abuse power and influence. And this is why, in the end, the only fit person to rule the world and to rule over God's people with ultimate authority and power is the Lord Jesus Christ. He had so many opportunities, didn't he, during his earthly life to take for himself. And yet, unlike David, he, cho he chose to give. He laid his power down. He became the lowest of the low so that we might be saved. let me say before we move on, if you're, if you're exploring Christianity, you're trying to make sense of the Christian faith, perhaps it's the case with you that you've been put off by abuses of power in religious circles. Maybe things you've read in the press or things you've seen more up close. That is deeply regrettable. And it's nothing like the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're looking for somebody you can trust completely, someone who will care about you, and help you, ultimately the one you're looking for is him. Come to him. 
Well, the first crime at least has been committed and now comes the cover-up. This is 11 verses 4 to 27. Chapter 11 verses 4 to 27, the cover-up. Verse 5 there, notice, really puts the cat among the pigeons. Because Bathsheba, we learn, is pregnant. And we're not told exactly how David received the news. We can only imagine. But surely he suddenly knows that his private indiscretion would be glaringly obvious to everybody. So again, he has, a, he has a choice to make. He can come clean. He can confess. He can throw himself on the mercy of God, or he can try to cover it up. And that's what the whole of the rest of this story is really about. Not so much just sin, but whether sin can be really covered up. And by the end of, by the, sorry, by the beginning of verse 27 of chapter 11, the answer seems to be yes, doesn't it? Now, it's true in the the intervening verses in chapter 11, it it does involve David breaking several of the other commandments to adultery. He adds lying and even murder, which reminds us of something we hinted at earlier, that sin is utterly ambitious. It never stops willingly. It always wants you to go further. Give sin an inch and it will take a thousand miles, a a longer look, another click, a bigger bet, another drink or ten, another secret meeting with him or her, one more gossipy conversation or another vindictive email. Sin always wants more. Uriah, of course, isn't very cooperative with David's cover-up. When David tries to get Uriah to sleep with his wife so that he can pretend that the child belongs to Uriah, Uriah shames David with his righteousness. Verse 11, he refuses to indulge himself while other people are fighting. And even when David gets him drunk, verse 13, he won't do it. Until David is so desperate that he arranges for Uriah to stand right in the most dangerous part of the battlefield. And David even has the gall to put Joab's mind at rest about Uriah's death there in verse 25. Have a look. Verse 25, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. This is what happens in war, Joab. Don't worry about it. I've slept with another man's wife, then I've hidden it, then I've got the husband drunk, then I've had him killed, but don't let this matter displease you. And yet, for all of that, by verse 27a, the cover-up has worked. Who in Israel knows what David has done by verse 27a except David and a bit of Joab? David is proving here that sin can be covered up from other people and for a long time. There was a news story back in August of last year about a receding lake just east of Las Vegas called Lake Mead. And it hit the news because the waters of the lake have been slowly receding over time. And things that have been floating underwater for years and years are beginning to wash up on the shore, including in a corroded barrel, a dead body with a gunshot wound. That's quite striking, isn't it? How long has that body been there, hiding in the dark waters of the lake? Who shot the bullet? Who thought they'd got away with it? No one will bother dredging that lake. No one will look. Until the waters start to recede and the bodies start to wash up on the shore. David shows here that sin can be covered up for a long time, but it will come out eventually, sometimes in this life, 
always in the next, when the Lord Jesus returns and all the books are opened. And the reason for that is that there is one person from whom sin can never be finally covered up. There's one person who sees everything we say, everything we do and think and want. And that person, did you notice, is missing from the first 26 or 27 and a half verses of the story. Did you spot that? Not a single mention of the Lord. As though David, in his mind at least, is living in a godless world where the only problem with sin is other people finding out about it. But then finally, in verse 27b, have a look. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So scene three, the confrontation. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 15. Given that the child has been born by the time Nathan arrives, it looks as though David's crimes have been lurking underwater for some time. David, uh, Nathan comes to David and he tells him a sort of a parable about a rich and a powerful man stealing a lamb from a poorer and a weaker man. And David's reaction there in verse 5 and 6 is striking, isn't it? Would you have a look with me? Verses 5 and 6, how, how would you describe his reaction? It's indignant. This is a disgrace. His anger was greatly kindled against the man. How dare this richer man, with all that he has, steal the only lamb the poor man owns? As the Lord lives, verse 5, says David, the man who has done this deserves to die. And of course, he's right. Imagine receiving all of that kindness from the Lord and being so ungrateful and wicked in response. Notice David's moral senses are in fine working order when it comes to other people. And then comes the dagger in verse 7. You are the man. Now, do you read that and think, David, how do you not see this coming? How is this a twist? Isn't this story obviously about him? How does he walk straight into Nathan's trap? But this is what sin does to us. It's what the Bible calls searing the conscience, burning away its sensitivity until it doesn't feel anything. If I repeatedly ignore my conscience when it's telling me I'm doing something wrong, it's like I'm searing it with a hot poker or a firebrand. I'm destroying its sensitivity until it doesn't feel anything at all. Or, or it's like repeatedly ignoring a warning light on my car dashboard until the car breaks down. Or it's like ignoring the fire alarm blaring away in my house until my house is a heap of ash. If I ignore my conscience long enough, eventually it'll get so quiet and ignorable that I won't hear it at all. So look, if your conscience is warning you about something in particular this evening, whatever you do, don't ignore it. It is so dangerous to ignore your conscience. Let it drive you to the Lord Jesus. And David is so self-deceived by it now that he needs Nathan to spell it all out for him. And don't we need that from each other? We all like to think that we're self-aware, don't we? But none of us have, has perfect self-knowledge. We're all, to some degree, deluded about ourselves when it comes to our sin. We can see sin easily in other people perhaps, but 
be blind to our own. Do you remember Jesus' image? He talks about the person with that great plank in their own eye, which is swinging around as they go about town. But as they go about town with this great plank in their own eye, they're busy pointing out all the specks in other people's. None of us see ourselves perfectly. This is why we need Nathans in our life. This is why churches like ours are to be places where we lovingly speak the truth to each other, where we're willing to have the hard conversations to hold each other lovingly accountable. But places where we can be honest about our own failures, to believe in grace enough and to have the courage enough to wisely and carefully help others out of a hole when they're struggling with sin. It's good to ask ourselves, isn't it, do we welcome those conversations? Well, let's put it a different way. Who is your Nathan? Do you have a Nathan? Do you have someone who knows they have permission to say hard things about, to you, about you? And if you don't, could you find one? Could you talk to somebody about that? Someone recently commented to me that we're a very polite church. And look, sometimes that can be good, and it can be born out of love for each other, can't, can't it? Look, we don't want to be tearing each other apart. We should thank God that that isn't happening, if it isn't happening. But if we never call out sin in each other, we're not really loving each other, are we? We're, all we're doing is making sure we're liked by each other. That's not the same as love. But when someone else's life is on fire, it isn't loving or kind to say nothing. It isn't kind to let people persist in sinful habits that might threaten their soul. The kind thing, the loving thing, as the book of Jude puts it, is to snatch them from the fire before it's too late. So let's resolve not to be too polite to do that for each other. Well, look, David has no defense. He is banged to rights. He's got nowhere to turn. He knows. He's taken God's amazing kindness to him And he's repaid it with adultery and deceit and murder. And we've heard him. He's already passed sentence on himself. And all that's left really is is for Nathan to spell out the terrible consequences of David's sin, which we'll see as we move through the book. Oh, it's a terrible story, isn't it, this? It's a terrible episode. And as we close, let's ask, what should we learn from it? Well, look, here are three quick lessons. There are probably plenty more. Three very quick lessons, and they'll come up on the screen as we go very quickly. Firstly, we need to learn, don't we, the impossibility of hiding from God? We can't do it. Adam and Eve couldn't do it in the Garden of Eden, though they tried. King David couldn't do it here. We can't do it. We can hide the reality from everybody else. But we can't hide from him. He sees everything. And then the second thing we need to learn, surely, is the terrible consequences of sin. We haven't gone into these in detail in David, but we will go on to look at this together. Because much of the rest of 2 Samuel, I'm afraid, is a little bit like watching a car crash in slow motion. Sin begets sin and destruction and chaos. David would so regret the decisions he's made. Nathan summarizes it there for the king, doesn't he, in 12 verse 10? 
Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. The sword, that is violence. Now the tragedies begin with the loss of Bathsheba's child. That's very hard and it raises lots of questions that this passage doesn't answer for us. For some of us that will bring back very painful memories. Look, please, don't take away from this evening that miscarriages or infant deaths, terrible as they are, are judgments from the Lord. That's not what's going on. Don't hear that. This is unique to David. It's a terrible consequence of his terrible crimes. But it is a reminder, at least, that sin does have terrible consequences. And even for Christians, a Christian is a forgiven person. That is a wonderful truth. But sin can still cause devastation nonetheless. Hurtful words can linger for a lifetime. Lustful desires can shatter mar marriages. Addictions can leave scars that never fully heal in this life. God has promised that he's going to wipe away every tear when he comes back. But until that day, the consequences of sin can be incredibly painful. And that should make us resolved all the more to fight it with all the strength God gives. But then just one more lesson and then we're done and it's this. We can learn too, I think, the amazing grace of God. Please come back next week and hear more about that. But just see a glimpse of it here. Of all the shocks in this shocking chapter, 12 verse 13 may be the most shocking. David has admitted that he sinned against the Lord and he deserves to die. And you can just imagine him, you know, he's waiting for fire from heaven to come and swallow him up. And what does he hear instead from Nathan? Verse 13 of chapter 12, Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. And on one level, we should be shouting at the passage at this point and saying, how is that fair? How is this just after all he's done? Well, we're, we're going to think about that more next week. But just see how kind God Almighty really is to sinners when they repent. Even sinners of the ugliness of King David. We see that ugliness when we look in the mirror, don't we? When you look in the mirror, don't you see all your shame or at least some of it, your guilt before God? But the wonderful message of the Lord Jesus is that he's willing to take our sin in all of its ugliness and he's willing to put it away forever. He will remove it as far as east is from west, as far as one point on the horizon to the other, if we'll bring it to him. So as we close, just a word for the brokenhearted. If you're grieving your sin, the Holy Spirit is just pressing on something this evening. If you're grieving the decisions you've made in the past, the sinful desires that you've indulged, if you're grieving the painful consequences that you're enduring for decisions and choices you've made, will you come back to the cross? God sees everything you've ever done, and he offers to put away all of your guilt for every single thing. Don't cover it up. Come clean. Let Jesus take your punishment instead of you. Come to the cross where King David's greater son gave his life for sinful people like us.